Grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. They say that confession is good for the soul, so I must let you know that I didn't want to preach this sermon. Maybe like you, I didn't really want to be here this morning. So I wrestled through the sin that remains in my own heart. I had barriers between me and serving the Lord. Barriers internal. The power of the reading of Scripture and singing of well-thought-out and well-crafted songs of the faith break down a resistant soul, don't they? They have me. I, I repented long before this morning, just so you know that. I came in a repentant faith, but I still didn't feel like preaching the Word. Maybe you don't feel like listening to the Word preached. Can I beg of you to lean in to God's appointment for your soul for these moments? He has brought you here for this time to hear this section of His Word. And I have prayed and will continue to pray that He'll use His Word to bring you to joy-filled faith in what God's going to do in the days to come. At the end of Revelation, we come to God's final words. It's his last statement of how this is all going to go. Last words are really important words, aren't they? All of God's word is infinitely important. But his final words have a special meaning and significance as he points us to the end of it all. And what I want to impress upon your soul this morning, whether you're a believer in Jesus and you know eternal life in Him and these words will increase your hope and fill you with joy, or whether you're a skeptic or a resistant unbeliever who's here to please a family member who invited you. My prayer for you is that these words penetrate your soul and show you that someday it's all going to end. And our God's told us how it's going to end, and what the state of that ending will be. And what I want you to see is that there's a key feature about the end that I think often gets missed. When we speak of heaven, I think we think of, of all of the results, the, the joyous experiences of heaven. And there's a, a key reality to heaven that takes center stage in our text and therefore will take center stage in my sermon, and that is the presence of God in heaven. We've taken for our theme for 2023, our Christmas season, the theme of God came down. In our first sermon, we considered how God came down in the Old Testament, very sporadic and spectacular. When he came, it was obvious and he caught people's attention and he had a specific reason. We looked at four accounts where he did that in the Old Testament. And then we turned our attention last week to the, the climax or the pinnacle of human history when Jesus, the Son of God, came down. And we've read of and sung of that this morning. When God humbled Himself and took upon Himself the form of humanity and came in the likeness of men and became servant and slave of all so that He could secure our redemption. But even that coming was temporary, wasn't it? Even that coming of Jesus into our world was for a time. It was at the fullness of time, but it was 
just for a time. And when he finished his work on the cross of Calvary, and when the Father put his exclamation point on that work by raising him from the dead, he then ascended to the Father's right hand because his work for the time was finished. And he now, as Hebrews tells us, is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, for his own. But when he left, he left bodily, but sent his spirit to indwell his church. And so in that sense, his presence remains in us individually. You yourself as a believer in Jesus are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But as 2 Corinthians says, so is the church. The church gathered becomes a, a unique expression and abode for the Holy Spirit in this world. But though that's a, a very real and, and definite and true presence of God among us, you still have to receive that truth by faith, right? We don't see the Spirit here in us and among us. What we look at this morning is the, the glorious finish. The, the finale of it all. When the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit will come and, and dwell with us. And we with Him. During the Christmas season, we never tire to speak of the first coming of our Savior into the world. I said at the beginning that there's some news that deserved to be told thousands of years before it happened, and then it deserved to be proclaimed by angels when it happened, and then it deserves to be told by believers for every generation for all time, and it deserves to be the centerpiece of, of all eternity, and that's obviously Christ coming into the world and securing our redemption, the gospel of Jesus. We love to retell that story. But that reality points to another soon-coming reality, and that's another coming. And so to say it this way, Christ's first coming guarantees and, and secures His second coming. And because He came once, He must come again. There's, there's more to do. Our redemption is not yet complete. It's fully provided for, but there's still work to be done in the world. And that's what we'll see this morning. In fact, because He did come and was born in Mary, from Mary's womb and born in Bethlehem, because He lived a sinless life and laid down that life as a sacrificial lamb on Calvary's cross to take away the sins of the world, because He was laid in a borrowed tomb and, and the tomb could not hold Him and He was raised three days later to life everlasting, and because He ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father, and because he has promised us He's coming again. We can be assured that what we read in Revelation 21 and 22 will for sure happen. Now we know from Acts 17, Paul tells us that when the Son comes again, He's not going to come to provide for the forgiveness of sins again. That's done. And when He comes again, He's going to come as the righteous judge of all, the living and the dead. And when He comes as the righteous judge of all, He's going to bring with Him the, the wrath of God upon an unbelieving, rebellious world. And that's actually what most of the book of Revelation is all about. Telling the, the, the uh, fore, uh, foretelling, excuse me, what will happen when Christ returns and brings His wrath upon the world. But that will give way when that wrath is poured out and judgment is done. Those who are in Christ will be welcomed in to heaven. That's what we read of this morning in Revelation 21, verse 1. Dallas read a few of these verses already, but I'll read them again. Revelation 21, 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven 
and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jump down to chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we believe these promises to be true. And we look with expectant faith at the coming day when you will make your word our reality. We pray that you would stir in us through the preaching of the word, faith in our hearts, joy in the depths of our being, knowing what is yet to come. Help us, Father. We pray especially for those among us who don't yet know Christ in this way, are still faithless and lost in their sins, captive to their own lusts of their own flesh. Lord, would you, by the preaching of your word, draw them by your spirit to turn to Christ and to see in him as their only hope and to be rescued and saved now and for eternity. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16 says that the psalmist says that at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. We just read some of the clearest description of that in all of Scripture, of those pleasures that await us in eternity. But all of those pleasures and joys are derivative. They're secondary. They are the pleasures they are because of the key feature of heaven. The key reality and truth of heaven is that God is there And we are there with Him. And He dwells with us and we with Him. As Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven says, our longing for heaven is a longing for God. God's greatest gift to us is and always will be Himself. If you know anything about your Bible, that's a a strange thought to think that God will dwell with us and we with Him, isn't it? Everything in the Bible up to this point has had God in mysterious distance from us. 
Even in the garden, before sin entered into the world, God was not constantly present. He came in the cool of the day to talk with Adam and Eve. Until they sinned, then they were cast from the garden, and then His interaction with them became all the more transcendent and distant. It came at times through visions and through Him speaking directly to them and through His revealed Word over time and through unique, sporadic, spectacular appearances throughout Old Testament days. Maybe the the longest, most pronounced display of the presence of God with His people in the Old Testament is the Shekinah glory of God. I say that word because you should know that word, Shekinah glory of God. It's the glory of God that came and, and dwelt among God's people as they were on the exodus out of Egypt to the promised land. And God came down in the form of a a glory cloud and a a glory pillar of fire. It was an expression of His unique glory among His people. And and by that glory, He led them through the wilderness and led them to the promised land. And then you remember when they built the tabernacle and later the temple, they had the, the centerpiece of the tabernacle and temple was the most holy place. It was a, a cubed room that was behind all these curtains that kept its view from your sight. You couldn't see what was in there or what was going on there. And it was in that inner room that the the glory of God descended upon the Ark of the Covenant and resided among His people behind all these coverings and mysteries. And only one person one time a year would go into the most holy place, right? The high priest on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of of God's people, and he would go in and, and tie it around his leg, you know, would be a rope in case he went in presumptuously and died in the presence of God. They'd have a way to remove his body. And then you get to the New Testament, and the pages explode with the news of God coming down and the person and work of Jesus. But even that's just a, a temporary appearance of God, and he's veiled in human flesh. He displays His glory through these miracles and this powerful teaching, but it's still confusing and and somewhat mysterious, especially to those who don't believe. But then we come to the end of the book. And God lets us know that this isn't going to be how it always is. That one day He's going to come and dwell with us and us with Him. Beloved, He's going to tabernacle with us. It's the same word. His Shekinah is going to be in our midst and His presence will be known to us in a very real and true way. And because that's true, heaven is heaven indeed. In fact, if you take this key element out of heaven, you no longer have heaven. If you remove the presence of God from eternal heaven, you no longer have eternal joy, peace, and the lack of anything accursed. We must have God to have all these other things. So what will that look like? And I just want to point you quickly to six features of this coming eternal life, this coming heaven in the presence of God. First, it's a new universe. In 21.1, we're told that the old earth and the old heaven, the first earth and first heaven will pass away through the fires of judgment. Now God will then create a new universe free from sin and free from sin's curse. It's hard to imagine. We can imagine it because we see this world, but we see this world under the covering of the curse. And it's hard to fathom what what will a tree look like absent of man's sin 
and its effect upon all of creation. We'll find out one day when God recreates it all on that glorious day. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 tells us that the first earth will pass away, disappearing with a horrific noise. The celestial bodies, those stars and planets in the heavens will melt away in a blaze and the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare, the Apostle Peter says. And then when that's done, the fires of judgment have fallen. God says, I will make it all new. I'll complete your redemption. I'll finish the adoption of you as my sons and daughters and I'll give you a new place to live. We're told in Romans 8 that all of creation groans under the weight of sin's curse. Your dog's life is harder because of mankind's sin. The animal kingdom's existence on this planet is more difficult because we brought sin into the world. Your, you don't need me to tell you this, but your life is hard because of yours and others' sin. Your rebellion against God, it has consequence. Just like anything else in life. What you do bears consequence. And the consequence for our sin is curse upon our soul and curse upon our existence. But there's coming a day when God will end all that. Do away with the first heaven and the first earth and recreate a new universe. And then there will be a new city. This new city will come down upon this new earth. We're told in verse 2. It's the new Jerusalem. And these are the two prerequisites to God dwelling with us. The, the next four that I'm going to talk about are, are the benefits of God dwelling with us. But these are the things that had to happen to make it possible for God to dwell with us. He had to recreate everything. And He had to establish a city which would be our heavenly, eternal home where He would dwell with us. That's described for us in verse 2 of Revelation 21. It's a holy city coming down from God, prepared as a, a bride adorned for her husband, as a bride walks down that center aisle on the wedding day and everyone's eye and attention is upon her and her beauty adorned for that moment, so too will the new Jerusalem descend from heaven made by God and given to us by God to rest on earth to be our dwelling place. Earlier in Revelation, we were told about how the old Jerusalem, namely the religious and political leaders of the Jewish uh, people were corrupt. They had partnered with the world and even with Satan himself and made a, a treaty with the Antichrist. That's been dealt with by the time you get to Revelation 21. The holy judgment of God is, has fallen upon that wickedness and now we see God remakes it all. This is what He does. He, he fixes our mess. He cleanses our sin and He recreates all that we've destroyed. He gives us a new city to dwell on in this new earth, in this new universe. This heavenly Jerusalem is the new capital city. It's the, the crown jewel of God's recreation. There's more description given in the verses I didn't read. I skipped over verse 9 to verse 27 of chapter 21. Read that later. That's the description by God of what that city will look like. And, and it's an amazing sight. In verse 9, John the Apostle is taken up on a high mountain so he can kind of get a bird's eye view of this coming new Jerusalem, this masterpiece of God. And when John sees this beauty, it, it almost surpasses his ability to describe it. 
And it's like you're, you're looking, as you read that text, it's like you're looking through a, a telescope at a far-off city, because it is. And you're trying to imagine through terms we can understand in our current context. Gold so pure that you can see right through it. That kind of stuff. That you read it and you think, this is unbelievable. And apart from God doing it, it is unbelievable. Mankind could never make a city of this beauty. In fact, what you, what you come to as you read it is that it's transcendent, meaning it's far above us and our existence. It's, it's obviously from God. It's transcendent in its beauty. It's transcendent in its glory. It's transcendent in its size. 1,380 miles cubed. It's massive. Every floor of heaven... We have no idea how many there are. Every floor of heaven is something like 1.8 million square miles. It's a massive, massive structure created by God. It's also transcendent in its light, emanating from the very presence of God in this city as He abides with us. And He says, this is our eternal destination. This new universe, a new city, brings a new nearness, and that's in verse 3. God says that I'll be near to you and you to me. His dwelling place, or quite literally His tent or His tabernacle, will be among us and with us in this new city. He'll be our God and we'll be His people in the fullest sense of that phrase. This is the great fulfillment of many Old Testament patterns and promises, isn't it? Laid down before us in foreshadows and the Old Testament narrative shrouded in great mystery. Now here in Revelation 21, all the mystery melts away. The the barriers are removed. The curtains are taken away. And we see it in all its beauty. God dwelling with us and us with Him. This is what Jesus did when he, He came to earth. He tabernacled among us, humbling Himself and giving His life as a ransom for many. And in the incarnation, we see the the second person of the Trinity humiliating Himself, humbling Himself, coming down to us. What we see in the New Jerusalem is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, coming to us, but we see the change in us, not in God. Now, He's condescending in one sense that He's choosing to make His presence known in the New Jerusalem. But in a very glorious sense, He's changing us so that we can dwell forever with Him. So we can be in His presence and not be consumed by His holiness. We now live with Him forever, the text says. And notice it's all God's doing. This voice comes from the throne, declares it to be so. He's he's not manipulated or coerced or convinced against His will that this would be a good idea. The archangels did not combine one day and have a council with God and say, you know, we think it'd be really neat if and pitch this plan. No, this is God's idea. He, he created us ultimately for this moment. He sent His Son into the world to redeem us from our sins so we could be here with Him for all of eternity. What a God is that? What a glorious, majestic, merciful, grace-filled God. There's also a new comfort then in verse 4. 
because we're with God in verse 3, we have comfort from God in verse 4. Because He's so very near to us, none of the effects of the curse of sin can remain. God is too pure and too holy and too good and too perfect for these things that we know so well that are such a part of our constant existence. Like, why wouldn't you want to preach to God's people on Christmas Eve? Why would that be true? Because I'm a sinner just like you are. Like, what in us produces that kind of emotion or that kind of thought? That's sin, right? And we all know it. There's coming a day, a glorious, eternal, unending day when that is gone because we're with God. And because we're with Him, He takes all the sorrows of this life, all of the pains and agonies of life in this sin-cursed world, all of our mourning and all of our crying, all of those knots of circumstances that you can't untie, all of those relational difficulties that are a thorn in your side every moment you think and breathe and move. All of the pain of, of life in a sin-cursed world where it's just sometimes hard to get out of bed and you wonder why. Why does gravity hurt so much? All of that will be gone. They will all pass away. We had a glimpse of that when Jesus was on earth, didn't we? when He, as the Son of God, brought a little bit of heaven into our world, at times peeled back the curtain of, of His humanity and displayed His deity and showed His power. And so He had the power to forgive sins and save a soul on the spot, removing all of its eternal consequence. He had the power over creation to, to remove the effects of the curse upon the blind man who He just said to him, see, and He saw or the dead body in the tomb, his good friend Lazarus, he just simply spoke. Lazarus come out and new life came back into Lazarus' body. He walked again out of that tomb. That was just a brief preview of, of the, the turning back of sin's curse and sin's power in our existence. And that's going to explode into our reality in the new Jerusalem. We will know nothing but this. We will know nothing but the goodness and loving kindness and eternal comfort of God. Friend, there's, there's just simply no pain that you have known in this world that is too great for heaven to take away. You haven't. There's no difficulty that's been too hard, that's scarred you too deeply, that heaven will be unable to heal and remove. There's no distress of death or disease that will still find any ounce of sting in heaven. There's no greater or more complete cure to what ails you and me and all humanity than the comfort of God's presence, secured for us by God's Son. You see, to be at peace with God will put us at enmity with sin and sorrow and death. To be victors with Jesus will make us overcomers of all the pain and agony and hardship of this life. Praise be to God. Fifth, there's a new finality. It's in verses 5 through 8. 
this new comfort will come with a new finality. And so God speaks from His throne in verses 5-8, through eight, and He says, let, let this be written down so all will read and know. He says, I'm making all things new. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. I started it. I'm going to bring it to an end is what He's saying. I, I'm going to complete it. I'm going to take it, take it to its completion and consummation. It's all going to fulfill its purpose. There's been a, a few other times where that idea of God saying it is finished has happened. Do you remember? John 19, verse 30, when Jesus on the cross with His few final breaths cries out, to tell us die, it is finished. Paid in full. He, he meant redem redemption's price has been fully secured by His work on the cross of Calvary. Then in Revelation 16, verse 17, we're told that it's done as the final angel pours out the final bowl of God's wrath upon the earth. So the, the wrath of the righteous judgment of God will come to its completion. And now we come to the, the end of it, of the end, the end of it all. Where God says, no, now listen, everything is done. Every aspect of my creative purposes before the foundation of the world has been brought to their fulfillments. Every work I intended to do throughout human history has been done. Every soul I set about to save has been saved. Every redeemed and lost sheep has been brought safely home. This is particularly true, the, the end of all of this. is particularly true for those who are in heaven and for those who are outside of heaven in verses 7 and 8. So those eternally sealed in the glory of heaven are described in this text with, with two words. You see that in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Two descriptors there. The one who conquers and the one who is the son of God. What it means to conquer throughout the book of Revelation, it means to persevere in faith, to keep believing, to keep trusting. It doesn't mean if you've trusted you can lose your salvation. That's not what this means. It just means if you truly have believed, you will not stop believing. And having believed, you will overcome all the, all the opposition of the world. Because listen, if you stand before the world today and say, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything He has said is eternally true. I stake my life and my eternity upon it. If you stand before our world and say that today, you've immediately put yourself in opposition to almost everyone. And they will seek to destroy you, to cancel you, to shut your mouth and move, remove you from society's narrative. But beloved, that, that's not the final story. It's, it's going to cause you shame to follow Jesus, but there's a, a greater end than there is the trial in the middle. You have the heritage then of being God's child as an overcomer it's a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 where he said those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed because they will be satisfied by God. It's a satisfaction given to us. It's foreign from us. It's, it's not a satisfaction we earn or, or make up. It's a satisfaction God gives to us as we receive it by faith. This is the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55 when he says, let all who are thirsty come and drink. Let all who are hungry come and buy bread without money and without price. You see, God offers this 
salvation for your soul, free to you, though it cost him the life of his own son. And by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sinless life and his substitutionary death, you can lay hold of eternal life and have the water of life given to you to satisfy your soul both now and especially on that eternal day. Those are the ones who conquer. And the text says they are eternally secured in that state. They are forever those who've conquered and those who are sons. It's also true for those who are sealed in death. They're defined by their sinful rebellion and their unbelief in verse 8. The text says they're cowardly and faithless. You see, not all who've ever lived will be in the new Jerusalem in the new creation. In fact, Jesus said most won't be. Few there will be who find this narrow way of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Most will die sealed in their sins, described in verse 8. They're cowardly, meaning they didn't have faith. The opposition of the world and the trials of life snuffed out their trust in Jesus. Or more than that, they've never claimed Christ and they just hated Him and they're, they're known by their sin. We all have sinned in at least one of these ways described in verse 8, correct? The difference is not that you've done them. The difference is that you're marked by them. This is who you are. And especially unto eternity, you take your rebellion with you to the grave. They are known as the murderers and the sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. What's their eternal portion? Their eternal portion, the text says, is in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. Friends, this is not a game. This is not a, a cute sermon to help us think spiritually this Christmas season. This is not religious hyperbole or dramatic preacher overstatement. I confess I'm prone to. This is the coming finality of the eternal state. Those who are in Christ by grace through faith are eternally sealed and will one day be in this heavenly city in the presence of God. Those outside of Christ are eternally defined by their sin and its consequent suffering and death. You see, heaven has a new finality. And so the question before you this morning is, are you the coward, the faithless, or are you the overcomer by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? There's a new worship in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22. The scene painted here is that of a new Garden of Eden. The end of chapter 21 painted the new Jerusalem as a permanent and eternal holy of holies. In chapter 22, we see a new Garden of Eden in the new city. The water flows freely through the river of life in the main street of heaven, coming directly from the throne of God. And the tree grows on both sides of the river and gives fruit to the nations. And they're healed by that fruit. They're therapeutically given life by that fruit. The culmination of the scene, however, is that God is there on His throne. That nothing accursed or forbidden will be there, he says. There will be, there'll be no tree whose fruit we cannot eat. We'll have full and free access to the presence of God and the joy of God and the pleasures of God forevermore. And the text says God's servants will worship Him. He'll not just come and visit us in the cool of the day, but He'll be 
with us and will never leave us and we will never leave Him. And this will compel our worship. This will remove all hindrances and barriers that stand between us and worshiping God in this life. In 1712, a Scottish pastor name of Thomas Halliburton was about to die. He requested that Psalm 84 be read and sung. He joined in part of the singing and then he said this, I had always a mistuned voice, a bad ear, but which is worse of all, I had a mistuned heart. But shortly when I joined the temple service above, there shall not be world without end one string of the affections out of tune. That's because we'll be with God. You won't have to worry about wrestling with your heart to go and worship the Lord. You will be compelled. This worship will be new because we'll have this new vision. We'll no longer squint to see God through the dim eyes of faith. We'll see Him as He is. This new vision then comes with a new identity. And I'm hurrying because we're out of time. This new vision comes with this new identity. We'll have His name stamped on our foreheads declaring that we are His and He is ours. This new worship will flow out of us because we have this new security described in verse 5. There will be no night there. There will be nowhere to hide and no need to hide. There will be no locks on doors because there will be no thing accursed in heaven. This new security will come with a new vitality. We won't need to sleep in the new Jerusalem because we will have the ongoing, unending flow of the life of Christ in the river of life. This unending supply will cause us to unendingly worship Him. This worship will not just look like sitting around singing His song, though it certainly will be that. We're told all throughout the book of Revelation that His Worship in eternity will be filled with service to Him. It's a whole other sermon, but you're not going to just sit there idly hoping that you remember the tune or know the words. You're going to long to worship Him through service to Him in the new Jerusalem, in the new universe. Beloved, there's so very much wrong with our world. There's so very much wrong with you. And there is only one answer, one hope, one solution. And it is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if you are in Christ, because He's been gracious to you and rescued you by His sacrifice on the cross, and you put your faith in Him, then you have this to look forward to. When it all will melt away. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the power of your word to teach us what to look for. We pray that you would fill us with resolved faith. Knowing what's coming, help us, Father, to take better steps of faith in this life. Knowing that it's but for a short time. The challenges, though hard and difficult, are temporary. Father, help us to cling to you, to all that you've said believing that one day all that is old will have passed away and you will make everything new. Praise be to you now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.